There are many issues that plague youth. The church acts as a safe haven. It provides a place where youth can come together to hear the Word of God. Upper Room Media presents to you this Youth Talk, delivered from Sydney, Australia. So as you all discussed in the workshops, uh, today's topic is, uh, the series is dead end and today is um, how to feel unstuck. So the topic today is based on this thing verse which is up on the screen. It says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing, now I shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I'll read that last line again. I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I mean, first thing you'll see there is that whatever you think is happening uh, in our life right now, wherever you feel you are stuck, uh, whatever is causing you the most problems, it may seem like an empty desert or that you're in the middle of wilderness, but God can do the impossible. Can make a road in the desert and rivers, sorry, rivers in the desert and road in the wilderness. So let's come back to this verse in a little bit. Before that, I just wanted to play this very quick Tony Robbins clip um, where he describes what being unstuck and empty, being stuck and empty. So, well, I can being fit. The more mental well being, the greater the balance. Challenge quickly and not get stuck. I think stuck states, if, if I was going to give you my two cents for you guys might want to play here is to get your perspective on how do you get out of stuck states. We've all been there. Mm-hmm. You're stuck in a relationship and you, you, know, you just can't get through and you get pissed off or you get frustrated or you get sad. You know, some people get angry and they fight. Some people run and some people freeze. Those are the three patterns we all have when we get across something that's overwhelming to us. You know, what is your pattern and what can you do so you don't get stuck in that pattern and you get out of it really quick? It's not that you'll ever get there, it's just you don't stay there. That's how you have a great quality of life. That's right, like... Just a very short description about what being stuck looks like, what is the pattern of being stuck, and what are the next steps to get out of there. I also just like the very generic Google definition of um, stuck, which is up here on the screen. It says, it's the overarching sense that you need to do something to move you from the place you're in to the place that you'd rather be, but you just can't. People describe this as being frozen in place and may even question themselves, their character, and their drive. So although it seems like something super simple, like I'm stuck in my career choice, or I'm stuck in a relationship, or I'm stuck in my spiritual life, I'm I'm unable to pray, but it can have very serious implications. It may even question themselves, their own character, and their drive. So not to be downplayed is the impact that being stuck can have on mental health, that can have on your demeanor, on your, on your, on your own self-worth. So these are kind of a few of the ways the world describes what being stuck is and the many different ways we can get stuck. But I would love to hear from you guys too. So if you can just go to menti.com, write in that code, and just, and it's fully anonymous, just start writing every scenario you can think of where you feel stuck. It means you have to get your phones out of your pockets. Don't you think that'd be a hard thing to do? And once you start writing, the words will start coming up on the screen. <laughs> 
Uh, the code is 74888331. Just any, any situation where you feel stuck. Friends. I can't really escape that friendship group which I feel like I should be escaping. 
Um, but these are all kind of great areas. But uh, the good thing about what we're going to go through tonight is I think there is one simple method that is the secret to being unstuck in every single one of these scenarios. And it comes around in four steps. The first is purpose, the second is focus, the third is method or a plan, and the final one is execution. Let's think about purpose for a second. Anywhere where you're feeling stuck or stressed is usually uh, because of your surroundings. It's usually because of your perception of what's going on around you. I don't know if anyone here is an NBA fan, but I recently listened to a podcast that um, Nikola Jokic was on, who's a two-time MVP of the NBA. And someone, the, the person in the podcast asked him, uh, why is it that on the court you always look like you're not kind of, you're not stressed, you're not freaking out when it's one second to go, we're down by two, um, and, you've, and you've got the ball. Why is it that you are like that? And his response was, because there are things much more important outside of basketball. Basketball is maybe 20% of my life. I have my family, my friends, uh, he races horses, my, my horses, um, and that's kind of what was much more important. And so it made me think, he was able to not be stressed about the thing that makes him $60 million a year and where he's required to be at his best uh, in the clutch moments, in those moments where they give him the ball and say, you score for us to win this game. He doesn't feel that stress or pressure because of his perspective, because he has a purpose which is actually completely separate of basketball. And sometimes we can get stuck with our purpose. Let's take career, for example. I might feel very stuck in my career options or my university options because of one really, really terrible sin, and that sin is comparison. You've heard the saying that comparison is the thief of joy. I look at my friend over there, they're killing it, they just opened an e-commerce website, they're selling a thousand, whatever the new thing is to sell, a day, they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars, or I'm seeing my friend who got into medicine and they're, they're going to be a great doctor and earn all this money, or my friend actually even dropped out of school and he became a trainee and now he's making more money than I am and I'm still, I'm still at uh, university. We sit here and we compare ourselves to everyone around me. And so my purpose, my goal, my perspective becomes what everyone else around me is doing. Your purpose is going to be the driver for your willingness to change. If we're talking about the number one response that we have there, our spiritual life, our life of prayer, my purpose can't be to be like Father Elijah, be like Sanctus. My purpose needs to, be under, needs to be to understand why is it that I need to pray? Why is it do I need to have a relationship with God? Why am I coming to church on a Friday night? Why do I come to church on a Sunday? Why do I have confession? Why do I fast? Why do I pray? Why do I do all these things that take my time? And I have to have that purpose. If you're here tonight, there's many reasons you could be here tonight. Might be looking for friendship, you might be looking for more than friendship, you might be looking for the food that's coming up afterwards, but inevitably you're here listening to the Word of God, whether that was your intention or not. But to keep coming back when friendship fails, when all else fails, you need to have that rock of purpose. 
And for us, it's to understand that the message of the Bible is true. That if indeed Christ did, and, and purely historically speaking, if we're talking about facts, that there was a man called Jesus Christ, uh, 2,000 years ago, he died, was crucified on a cross, and rose from the dead, which is something that has never been done before, then in fact, the message that he's telling me needs to be real in my life. And that needs to be my purpose. That you hear all these talks and you read your Bible and you read your Ibeya and it has all these beautiful things that it's saying, but do I apply them to my life? What reason do I have to apply them to my life? And it needs to be because I think I need this for my salvation. I need to have a relationship with God. And so when the relationship with God becomes my purpose, the way to get there does, has nothing to do with the person next to you. has nothing to do with where you think this holy person is at or in your career, where you think that person is at. It becomes completely self-reliant. And you will only have that drive to pray when you're very tired or come to church when you stayed up really late the night before or be in a situation where you need in, in, immense self-control to not drink alcohol, not take a drug that someone offers you. To have that drive to do the right thing, to do the thing that takes you from the place that you are to the place that you want to be, you need to have that overarching purpose. And so that challenge needs to be for yourself to be, why do I need a relationship with God? Why do I need to seek God? Why is that an important thing in my life? Why do I come to St. Mark's Church so often? There could be other things drawing me here, but why do I need to seek a relationship with God? And that's a question that you need to answer. That it's beautiful to come to the Mass, to confession, um, to communion, to Tisbeha out of habit, but give the habit meaning. Because if the habit has no meaning, it's a very easy thing to go away. So that's the first thing is know your purpose and have your purpose to kind of give you the drive. The second is focus. I was attending that workshop up there um, and one of the boys was saying that um, the devil can often make you focus on things that you can't control. So either things in the past which happened and I mean there's no way you can change them or in the future which also often we can't control. But I think the more common issue and again let's kind of think about all the examples we have on the, on the screen. Say for example uh, being stuck in addictive sin. When we're stuck in addictive sin, sometimes I lose sight of my purpose, which is just purely to be with God and have a relationship with Him. But my focus, if I'm trying to fix that, is always, oh, I hate that sin. I hate that sin. I don't want to do that sin. I don't want to keep swearing. I don't want to keep doing whatever. And so your focus is always on the negative outcome. I don't want to do this. This thing is very bad. I'm a very bad person because I did this. But when we have a purpose, that purpose is always positive. If you think about it, any of you that set your mind to a purpose, be it health-related, career-related, friendship-related, relationship-related, spiritual-related, I guarantee whatever that purpose is that you come up with is a positive purpose. So how come when we come to our focus, when we start to focus on something, it's always that I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, rather than how do I do the things I want to do? And so there's that common kind of expression if I'm driving on the road and I see a tree on the side of the road and I think I don't want to hit the tree, I don't want to hit the tree, I don't want to hit the tree, your eyes are towards the tree, you're thinking of the tree and inevitably you're going to start veering towards the tree. And so if I'm always focusing on sin and focusing on uh, 
whatever it is that's taking me away from my purpose, then that's inevitably where I'm going to go. If I'm always thinking about it, it's always on my mind, but rather, if I replace that negative thought with my positive thought, with my purpose, with Christ, then I will slowly, slowly, slowly move in the right direction. And if God is always at the forefront of my mind, and that's kind of where the little things come into, come into play. When we're talking again about the spiritual aspect with focus, if I'm thinking, uh, when I drive my car in the morning, what am I listening to? I could listen to Drake and whoever, or I can put Upper Media into the car. Or when I wake up in the morning, do I pick up my phone and scroll through Instagram? Or do I leave my phone outside? First thing I do is three minutes times when I get up in the morning. These are all little goals to start building your focus towards something positive, to the goal that you want to get to. And it really does start with little things. The third step is a method, is having a plan. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, if, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. It's all well and good to have a purpose and say, for example, one of the case studies or examples we'll go through later is fitness. It's my, okay, I want to lose 10 kilos and that every morning when I wake up, I'm going to think about the healthy food that I'm going to eat. But then if you have no plan, like for example, you say, I want to eat healthy food all day today, but your fridge is stocked with burgers and hot dogs and fries. Or um, you say that I really want to pray every single morning when I get up but you have no kind of thing guiding you towards it, no icons, no Bible, no embed. You have none of the tools needed. You haven't built a plan saying, okay, first thing I'm going to do when I get in the morning. Then you've planned to fail because you haven't got a plan to succeed the way that you want to succeed. And then finally, there's execution. I mean, you can have all three of those steps, but you just need to do what you have to do. Those first three things will help you get there, um, but You'll, you'll see even throughout the Bible that God always requires of us a little bit of action. And sometimes it's, it seems a little bit ridiculous. One of the stories in the Gospels is um, in, Mark, in the book of Mark. There was a man, I think it's in chapter 2 or 3, a man who had a withered arm. And that man, obviously seeing Jesus coming, knowing that he's a great healer, he wanted to be healed. So if you think about a man that his whole life has had a withered arm, which either means that like his arm wasn't working, or he was missing part of his arm. Um, he wanted to be healed. So Jesus comes over to him, and does anyone know what Jesus says to the man? Anyone? What does Jesus say to the man with the withered arm? He says to him, raise your arm. Do you think that Christ needed him to raise his withered arm? for him to heal his arm? No. No. No answers. Um, no. Jesus definitely did not need him to maybe embarrass himself, lift his withered arm in front of a crowd and say, heal me, heal me, Jesus. But Jesus requires an action from him. Even something very small, like lifting my arm, like going to that icon of, of Jesus in your prayer room or in your bedroom, wherever it is, finding somewhere and giving him something. Giving him a small part of your heart. Telling him, I want to pray, but I'm unable. Give him some action. We have to execute. Um, and so we'll kind of, this is the method of being unstuck. And we're going to go through this in a couple of different case studies. 
I think a very underrated uh, character in the Bible is Daniel. Um, and in the book of Daniel contains probably uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it is a verse of action. I'm a very practical person. I like putting together plans. I like having direct steps. Uh, for example, I love maths and hate chemistry because maths was 1 plus 1 equals 2. But chemistry, you put chemicals together and you have no idea what comes out the other side. Um, so I, I could find no logic in chemistry. But I love this book and I love this story. Um, but more importantly, this verse, Daniel, which we'll go in the next slide, Daniel 6 verse 10. If you're ever wondering, what steps do I need to take to start the prayer? What steps do I need to take to not be worried that I'm stuck in a terrible situation? Daniel 6 verse 10 is a step-by-step -step guide of how to be with God and how to not have any fear, how to not worry about the future, how to not be stuck in a certain tribulation or scenario, and it's all outlined there. Before we go to this next slide, we'll just kind of play the context a little bit. Anyone? I've actually given up on anyone answering a question. The story of Daniel, uh, if anyone knows, um, through no desire of his own, Daniel kind of rose really quickly throughout the kingdom um, to the end where he was pretty much second to the king. And obviously with his rise, just because he was a righteous person, um, everyone around him, around him started to get jealous. So as everyone started to get jealous, um, they wanted him to fall. They didn't want him to be second to the king anymore. And so they devised a plan saying, okay, we know Daniel prays. Let's write a decree and say, uh, anyone who prays to anyone but the king shall be put to death. And so these schemers, they took this uh, decree to the king and the king has lots of different documents to sign and stamp. He was just stamping all these documents. And he stamped this document which says, anyone who prays to anyone but the king or worships anyone but the king shall be put to death. And so Daniel, who unashamedly prays to his God, every day uh, becomes victim to this. And so the verse in Daniel 6.10 comes right after Daniel finds out about this decree that the, the, the king has signed. So put yourself in that context for now. I live my whole life extremely righteous. I always followed God. I always fasted. I followed every commandment for, for, for Daniel to be that Moses gave them. I never strayed. I never desired any power. I didn't want to be promoted. I didn't care for any of that glory. I just sought my relationship with God. And now, after all that, I'm in this position where I'm going to be put to death because I prayed to God. Very simple. Put yourself in that position. You've done all of that, and now the reason you're going to die is because you prayed. And with that context, Daniel 6, verse 10, and I'm sure you'll agree, becomes one of the most incredible responses to something like this that you can see. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since the early days. Daniel found out that he was going to be put to death because he prayed, and his response, go home, go to my upper room, to my prayer corner, 
open my window so everyone can see me. I'm facing Jerusalem as I'm, as I'm taught to do and as I've been doing my whole life. I go down and my knees in humility. Three times that day, not because I'm extra anxious and I pray, I'm praying three times today because I want an answer, but I'm giving thanks. And that's my custom since the early days. So in this, we have a very clear model to follow of, and, and mind you, and it's, it's hard to kind of think about it, but the stories of the Bible are real. These people are real. Daniel was a human being like you and I, who was put in this situation where I imagine should have been a situation to create extreme anxiousness, extreme anxiety, extreme worry, and inevitably the end of his life, to be put to death. And so let's kind of break down how Daniel did this. And think back to our method. There is our purpose, there is our focus, there is our method and plan, and then there is our execution. Daniel had his his entire life revolved around his relationship with God. He was, and, and because of that, he was very diligent in everything he did. It's why he got promoted so often. It's why he rose the ranks. Because in the end of the day, a righteous Christian person is someone everyone will love in the workplace. It's someone who turns the other cheek. It's someone who is always serving, doing the things that no one else wants to do. Someone who's never going to cheat, never going to lie. It is the epitome of what people are looking for in the world, but unfortunately not what the world trains us to do. And just as a very side note, is an opportunity for us as youth, um, maybe rather a lot younger than me, but I still consider myself youth, um, to kind of show that in the workplace, in uni, at school, wherever we are, we have this opportunity to be very different from what the world is expecting of us. I spent most of my career in sales and partnerships, and that world is very dog eat dog. Uh, you're often in a team where you're competing against the people in your team, um, and if something comes up which you know shouldn't be yours, shouldn't be someone else's, you're taught in sales just to take it. You're like, you got you to take it, do it yourself. Don't let anyone else take your revenue. Um, but I found myself in situations many times in my career where and something like that pops up, and Although being hard because it means less money in my pocket, means my numbers are down, means my boss's numbers are down, so my boss is unhappy. I have where I should be giving a deal to someone else, I, I give it to them. Met with shock and awe at work in a negative way. Except to the person to whom I did that. Someone who never before would have considered doing something like that. Just while we're on this tangent, I will, I'll go a very quick story about, um, basically there was a man uh, in, in ancient Greece, maybe not so ancient, um, but he killed a man and then he wanted to escape, so he ran away from the town and he found himself, um, he found himself in a monastery. And so he was in the monastery living the life of the monks and um, he stays there and begins to repent and he really like hated what he did inside of himself. After a few months in the monastery, he decided he was ready to confess that sin of, of killing someone uh, to one of the monks. And it was the monk that had been assigned to him from day one, who was with him every single day, um, and, and that was kind of his mentor. So he sits down in confession with this monk and tells him, I killed this guy, his name was this, in, in this town last year, and I feel terrible about it. And the monk said, 
gives him a solution, gives him sign of the cross. This man from that day turns his life around. He leaves the monastery, uh, goes back into uh, the town, um, and is a completely changed man. One day he finds himself in a house with a family and he's telling the family this story. And uh, the family said to him, wait, tell us again, who was the man that you killed? And he says, oh, this guy, this was his name. And then, who was the monk at the monastery who, who gave you the, the solution? Tell us this monk. Because the family says to him, the man who you killed was the brother of the monk who gave you confession, who gave you absolution. And the man, the, the now saint, recalls not a single flinch on the face of that monk. Nothing. He just gave him a solution and he left. This man, you, if, if his life was changed before, even more so now. He went back to the monastery, became a monk, a bishop, and a great saint in the, in the Greek church. Because of the power of forgiveness, doing something different. Um, and that's kind of where we're called to be different from everyone else, like Daniel was. And that's why this was so shocking, that it was able to have a shocking outcome at the end of the day, and that he was saved from the lion's den, because he practiced the love, the forgiveness, that Christ expects of us. And sorry, now we've gone very far, tangent, we'll come back. Look at this story of Daniel. To kind of break down these steps, what did Daniel do? At the moment, he is second to the king. Very powerful man, has the ear of the king. There's multiple things he could do in this scenario. He could go to the king, make the forgiveness. He could make his own plot against the people that plotted against him. He could cause outrage, he could run away. All these things within his power. Again, put yourself in any one of these scenarios. For example, a while ago, many years ago, I used to work with my, my oldest brother in the company. And it would be like me in that scenario, say someone is trying to do something against me at work, it'd be very easy for me to be like, go to my, go to my brother and say, hold on, look what this guy's doing, you should get rid of him. Do everything within my power to get the outcome that I want. But Daniel's purpose is clear. Daniel's focus is clear. I want Christ. I want my relationship with Christ. And in the end of the day, nothing else happens. I don't care about anything else. And so what will I do? I will go to my upper room, the place where I'm used to meeting Christ. And that is step number one. Have a place where you meet Christ. It can be outside by the water. It can be in the altar over here at church. It can be a little prayer corner you have in your room. Have a place where you meet Christ. That's yours. That no one else can see, that no one else knows about. That is your upper room. And escape to that place to find your focus. To find your freedom from addiction and sin. Find your freedom from anxiety. Find your freedom from worry. From your inability to pray. Run to the place where it's possible to pray. The second step. He opened his windows towards Jerusalem. This one's just a beautiful point to not be ashamed of, of uh, who we are. No matter what the consequences. For him the consequences were death. And... In, in, in any case, he opened his windows towards Jerusalem. So anyone who's passing his house at that point could see him up there in the window praying to God. Um, Saint Jerome had a really nice saying about that. He said, Daniel, not regarding the king's command, but confident in God, did not pray in an obscure place, but went in the upper room and opened the windows towards Jerusalem so that he may feel the peace of God. Did not care about the fear of the king, he wanted the peace of God, the peace only God could provide him. And in terms of being proud of, that, uh, being proud of our faith and who we are in our relationship with God, 
There's a verse in the book of Matthew that says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Very strong words. That I have to be proud of my relationship with God. Not something I hide in uni, that I hide in the workplace. Some, not something that I'm overtly, I'm not sending my colleagues Bible verses every morning and coming in and dropping Bibles on all their, on all their desks. But I live my gospel. I live my relationship with Christ. It should be obvious to everyone around you that is not Christian, that you are a Christian. And that's actually a, a challenge I give myself today and give you all today, is that in a place where you've been amongst people who aren't from church or aren't Egyptian for a long time, could those people say, this person is a little bit different? They're a little bit more loving than anyone I've encountered before. Uh, a bit more forgiving. They never swear. Um, they never get drunk. They never do this and that. That person is different. Think about it. Think about the circle that you hang out. If you have circles outside of church, at work, at uni, wherever you are, can those people say to you that you are a Christian? The next step that Daniel did, and again, remember, he fully understands his purpose. He is focused on Christ. He resets that focus by going to his upper room. But the next thing he does is surrenders. He kneels down on his knees. He doesn't fly into his upper room in a rage saying, why God did you do this to me? All I do is pray. All I do is righteous. You've done this to me. How dare you? He gets on his knees in humility. St. Maximus points out that pride is the opposite of humility and the predominant sin of mankind. It consists of two forms of ignorance. The first is the ignorance of the divine power and the second is the ignorance of human weakness. In all these scenarios, we find ourselves extremely anxious. We want to control. We want to do something about it. In that pride, I am ignorant of my own weakness and ignorant of Christ's divinity. His ability to, and not necessarily get you the outcome that you wanted, because I can guarantee you, Daniel did not care whether he lived or died. He wasn't praying three times that day. He wasn't giving thanks. He wasn't on his knees to beg God for his life. He would say, I don't care where I live or die. My life is yours. It doesn't matter where I end up. My purpose is you, my relationship with you. My relationship with you continues in heaven or it continues on earth. St. Paul has a famous verse to... to uh, one second, it's left my mind. To live is Christ to die as gain. So regardless of what happened to St. Paul, and kind of the story the way it goes is that St. Paul was given an option. Do you want to die now or do you want to continue to live? And for him to say to live is Christ because he lives heaven on earth and to die as gain because I gained the kingdom of heaven. It didn't make a difference to him because he lived heaven on earth. Um, and that is our, our purpose. That is our ability to not place ourselves in the worry and anxiousness and being stuck in a certain situation. It's being focused, it's focusing on God. And kneeling is in itself symbolic of our inability to solve our problems ourselves. By being on my knees, by submitting to God, I know that everything is in His hands. One of the key parts of this verse is three times this day, as was His custom in the early days. What Daniel's reaction to this scenario is miraculous. It is nothing any of us, put your hand up if you think this is, you, you can do something like this, but nothing any, anyone in this room could be able to do. 
Someone tells you, are you put to death for praying? And I don't know who has this response. But this response is possible for Daniel because he prayed three times every day. He gave thanks every day. And it was his custom since he was young, since his early days. Daniel built his habit from when he was young. Nothing happens overnight. Father Jacob, many, many years ago, I'm oh, sorry, I go to St. Luke's, so a lot of uh, non-Egyptians, I'm saying Father Jacob. Um, I've, I've told a really nice story, oh, not nice story, but a very shocking story once, that in his early priesthood, I think the first year of his priesthood, he went to the St. George Hospital. And he went to the, um, to the cancer ward, where there was two women from the church. Um, and he said both those women were in very similar situations. Both had young kids, both were not very old, um, and both were given uh, uh, a diagnosis of terminal cancer. And so he said that was one of the most difficult things anyone could ask of him as a young priest to go and do. And he said he walked into the, the first room and the woman is crying and saying, how could God do this to me? How could God do this to my children? And I want to say I was sitting there thinking, like, yeah, fair enough, about like, I, don't, I really don't know what to say, but I feel so terrible. Like she's going to pass away. She has two kids. Her husband has not the greatest of jobs to support his family. What are, God, like, what are they going to do? And so he left the room a bit shaken, a bit shaken uh, in, in uh, what he was supposed to tell them. And he goes into the next room, and he said when he walked in, the woman's face was bright, and she was saying, what would you like a coffee? Do you want me to get you any food? She was smiling, and he said the very first thing he said to her was, oh, were you given a better diagnosis? Are you going to live? She goes, no, I'm still dying. And he goes, uh, <laughs> Why not? What's, what's going on? Because he's so shaken, he's come from the next room. And so he sat there with this woman, he said, almost interrogating her. He needed to know, like, what was the difference. And after talking with her for many hours, he said he discovered that she had a habit from when she was a teenager to read every single psalm every single day. As was his custom, as was her custom, from the early days. You build your relationship with God. Like any relationship. Like, if I, every Valentine's Day, went to the florist and got red roses and took them home, I'd be an idiot because I know my wife hates red roses. Like that. I did it three years in a row. That was stupid enough. It's been nine years, so like six years of, of non-red roses. But you build that experience. You build that experience with God. You realize that God, okay, last time I asked for a new car, I didn't get it fair enough, that's materialistic. Then the time after that, I asked to pass my exam, that's a good thing, but okay, fair enough, I get it, people fail exams. But this time, God, I asked for humility, and humility is a good thing, why didn't you give it to me? And so over time, you're learning, you're learning, you're learning, what is God's plan for me? What is God's will for my life? And you're building that experience with you. And over time, over toiling, I mean, anyone who goes to St. Mark's knows that, knows that, you will do anything to get into this. You will do three years as a garbage collector, five years at science in Adelaide, another 12 years in dentistry, where, who knows where, just to get into this. We will work. Egyptians know how to work. People will put the time in, they will study, they will send themselves to the other side of the country 
for about we will not sit. I will not sit in my corner and pray for two minutes, and then I expect God to give me the answer to my prayers, to give me peace, to give me humility, to allow me to escape from uh, addiction. But I'm not willing to put in the work, and the reward I get for this work is not an earthly reward. It is extreme peace. It is salvation. It is. What Adrani used to say that if you look at life as a very, very long string, when you can when you compare it to eternity, it is this deep. So we toil and toil and toil for our lives here, which is could be a year, could be five days, could be five years, ten years, fifteen years, we could die anytime. But I don't put any time for that eternity. And we really need to think about this. This really needs to become important to us because uh, we've seen death all around us and to understand my purpose. Why do I need my relationship with God? How do I get there? How do I be like Daniel who is told? I mean, is there anyone who can put their hands up and say they don't want this to be their response when someone says you're going to be put to death? I think everyone wants to be like this. I don't think there's a single person here who could say if someone says you're going to die, that my response is in all genuineness to give thanks. To say that's okay. I don't care. How ridiculous is that to think? You're going to be put to death? Thank you, Lord. Not a problem. That should be our goal. This verse is how to get there. And instance, maybe it's not three times a day, maybe it's 30 seconds a day. And for 30 seconds, you go to a minute. From a minute, you go to five minutes. Take those steps. And like everything else motivational in life, you can take three steps forward, ten steps back. But you keep having your purpose. There is your purpose to have a relationship with God. And that was his custom from the early days. So when we compare this, say for example, let's take health. Um, this is something that's been uh, really top of mind for me recently. I, I in, uh, in my own terms, reached what I thought was like my rock bottom of health uh, at the beginning of December last year. And for years I was saying, oh, I'm just like, always trying to lose weight, but it's not possible. I can't, I can't do it. And, and probably that conversation was going on in my head and really I felt stuck. And probably the two most places in my life where I have this getting stuck conversation is my prayer life and my health. Always the same conversation. I go to my confession Bible and I say, oh, I, just, I don't understand, I love God, I want to pray, and like I know there is great reward in praying, but why can't I just do it? I feel stuck. And the same thing with my health. I, I want to lose weight. I go to the gym for two or three weeks. I start eating healthy, but then it just all goes away. Why do I get stuck? And for me, I realized, again, I went through these steps. I went through these, uh, what's my purpose? It used to be that my purpose was like, just lose 10 kilos in 10 weeks. Like, just do it really quickly. But then I changed. In December last year, I changed. My purpose is just to have a healthy lifestyle. That is my purpose. Just change it. And then, what is my focus? Okay, just focus on doing the right things, eating properly every day, going to the gym every day. And then, the most important thing is I had a method and a plan. Very clear plan, six days a week, gym non-negotiable, X calories per day, being calorie deficit. I had a clear plan, and if I followed that plan, it's weight loss is, I realized weight loss is mathematics. I just don't eat all the bad stuff I used to eat, just eat X many calories, eat more protein, and the weight loss will happen. And it's the same thing in our spiritual lives. It's, it's the same kind of formula. Give God your time. Give it to Him consistently. 
but more important than the time, give God your heart. Um, one of the one of the verses we're encouraged to read every day in our prayer. The two the two kind of first prayers that we're encouraged to read: the Thanksgiving prayer, which if you didn't know, the church prays at the start of every single Sunday, every service. Funeral, we pray the Thanksgiving prayer. Ordination of the priest, Thanksgiving prayer. Wedding, Thanksgiving prayer. We start the liturgy, Thanksgiving prayer. And what does that prayer say? Anyone, please, just one answer from the crowd. Give thanks in one person. Sorry. Give thanks in every occasion, every condition, and in all things. Thank you. Every occasion, and that is what man But secondly, in the in the next prayer, in Psalm fifty-one, one of the verses, and again with repeated prayers, it's so easy to just skip over things. Um, but there's a verse in Psalm 51 which says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What does God want from me? He wants a broken spirit and a, and a contrite heart. So yes, I can give God my time daily and I should. But more importantly, with that time, give Him your heart. Don't, there's no, there is use in habit, there is use in discipline. But there is no use sitting in front of God and, and, and pretending. It is much more beneficial for you to lean in front of an icon, to kneel in front of an icon of Christ and tell him, I'd love to pray, but I don't know how. I'd love to love you, but it makes no sense to me. I can't see you, I can't hear you, I don't feel anything. It is much more beneficial to do that every day. And with time, you will feel God. With time, putting yourself in his presence, having that focus, listen to, having God at the forefront of your mind always, you will have that focus. So to conclude, Getting stuck can be frustrating in whatever it is. Addictive sin, in inability to pray, in my career, in my relationships, in my friendships, in my health, can be extremely frustrating. But also, I might sit there and question, like, God, what is your will? Like, why don't you want me to get out of this? How can I just decipher what it is you want from my life? Which uni, which career? This verse is the most simple answer to all of this. Try and drop that frustration, especially when we're talking about the spiritual life. God doesn't want that from us. He doesn't want us to sit there and stress about how to be a better Christian. God's will is very, very simple. It's rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what Daniel practiced, if you think about it. He was going to go to death, what did he do? He rejoiced. He went home, opened his windows, he was happy. Prayed without ceasing, three times that day, constantly with his mind on God, and in everything, give thanks. Lose the job, get the job, uh, find a girlfriend, boyfriend, break up with the girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, get into the uni you wanted, get kicked out of the uni you wanted. In every occasion, every condition, and in all things, give thanks. I think we can spend a lot of time trying to decipher what God wants from us, but I, it sounds harsh, and I don't mean it in the way that I'm going to say it, but God doesn't care about the outcome. He doesn't care about being a doctor. He doesn't care about being in a relationship at this age. He doesn't care uh, about any of those things. He cares that you love Him, and He cares for you. So he will always take care of you. But if you're sitting there and trying to ask God, should I do this job or that job? He doesn't care. As long as no matter what job you do, no matter what you pick, I mean, there's 
lines, like you're not going to pick to be a drug dealer. Uh, that's not something God is happy with and wants you to do, but in, in all other realms of all those choices where, I mean, those choices seem good, don't sit there and sweat about which, God, which one God wants you to do. So give it to Him, put it in front of Him. At the end of the day, as you're trying to figure out what is God's will, God's will is very clear. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. I guarantee if you practice this, you will lose that worry. You will lose that feeling of being stuck. And God willing, your goal, your purpose will be to seek a relationship with Him and to be like Him. And glory be to God forever. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.